0: The Battle of Mount Street Bridge was militarily the most successful rebel engagement in Dublin during the 1916 Easter Rising. A small corps of Irish rebels, around 17 men, held up some 1,700 British soldiers sent to put down the rebellion. For almost 100 years, the exact details of the battle remained largely unknown. That is, until now. A select group of historians, military experts, and computer scientists have created a very special digital project, creating a virtual world visualization of the events of the Battle of Mount Street Bridge almost 100 years after it took place. Susan Schreibman heads up the project.
1: We're launching Contested Memories, the Battle of Mount Street Bridge project. What we did was take a very novel approach to understanding this particular battle and what we did was create a 3D world of the battlefield of the engagement during the 1916 rising.
2: introduce you General Officer Commanding 2 Brigade Brigadier General Michael
0: The project is being launched by one of the most senior officers in the Irish Army and there's a reason for that.
2: As General Officer Commanding the 2nd Brigade of the Irish Defence Forces I am particularly honoured to be associated with this special historical occasion, the launch of a new academic study on the Battle of Mount Street Bridge.
0: Yeah, so this is a flyover. Um, the team are showing an online computer-generated a, yeah, simulation of, of the battlefield, the system that we're using. I'm slowly descending now. bringing a 100-year-old battle back to life. So I can give you an appearance from the ground level. You can get an idea of some of the sight lines and technical considerations that people have had to worry about. The Battle of Mount Street Bridge took place in an area of Dublin City near what we now call the Silicon Docks, near the Grand Canal Theatre and the home of high-tech multinationals like Google and Facebook.
3: The basic interaction is uh, similar to you'd find in a, in a game engine.
0: Um, it I'm looks a little WC. bit like a video game. Keys on a keyboard and then a mouse. We have the option to, to mouse look around. This project is about walking inside the past, seeing what the Irish rebels were seeing and what the British troops were facing, a view of the battle from all sides and angles. Of course, what it can't give us is what it was like to be those men and to walk in their shoes. The Irish army had a role and an interest in the project. Staff tested the weapons used in the 1916 battle. They've also studied the tactics... This was urban warfare before urban warfare was even invented.
2: It's a very, very interesting event and it's worthy of a very thorough scrutiny.
0: Captain Alan Carney is a ballistics expert. He spent years investigating incidents involving guns. Uh, People are
2: fascinated with small groups holding out
0: against large groups.
2: They tend to be the most popular stories. These were ordinary men holding out in a very small area, with the option to get away, with minimal military training, faced with absolutely incredible numbers of the biggest,
0: most powerful military, really, at that time in the world, and they held their ground. Alan organised testing of the guns that were used at the Battle of Mount Street Bridge, the actual guns, including the gun that did so much of the damage. This allowed the team to build a better picture of how events played out. That very same gun is on display at the National Museum in Collins Barracks. It's a Mauser C96 automatic pistol, by the way. Lar Joy has the key. He's one of the project team. And he's fired this gun as well. This
3: is the one that was used by Lieutenant Malone. These guns could be purchased in, 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 a, in a gun shop. The story is told that it, it actually was de Valera's uh, gun, his own gun. Uh, that he gave to Malone. By putting on a small stock on the back, it allows you to turn it into a small machine gun. Now, machine guns don't come around until 1918, so even the term uh, kind of for a, a small submachine gun like this wouldn't have been used. But it did allow Malone to have very active fire with a, a, a weapon out to 50 metres.
0: So, what exactly happened at the Battle of Mount Street Bridge on the Wednesday of Easter week 1916? How did so many soldiers from the greatest modern army on earth come to lie dead and wounded on this street in Dublin?
3: We have to go back to Sunday, I suppose, when the military council uh, decide that they're going to go ahead with the rebellion, despite the fact that they're in serious trouble at this point.
0: That's Billy Campbell. Since Billy retired from the Irish army, he's been a keen student of Irish military history... He's an expert on military tactics.
3: They still decided to, to go ahead, despite the fact that they had very few arms, despite the fact that there would not now be a countrywide rebellion, and despite the fact that they really um, had very few men to do this, this operation with. They deploy six main positions, basically strong points uh, that are connected to each other by outposts and patrols.
0: The Battle of Mount Street Bridge took place because a small band of Irish rebels were trying to stop large reinforcements of British troops getting access into Dublin city centre. While a computer simulation plays an essential role in resolving some of the disputed issues of the battle, the best way to understand what happened is to walk the battlefield.
3: Um, We're here at Northumberland Road on the south side of Dublin City. We're going to do a walkthrough of the action that took place here on the 26th of April 1916. It's a lovely day here today, the sun is shining. Um, On that April day, it was even warmer than today, very warm. In fact, the soldiers um, were in danger of becoming dehydrated in a lot of cases because of the the weight of their equipment and uniforms, etc. Um, The the layout of the area hasn't changed that much, really. Uh, The road profile is the same. The houses are more or less the same houses on each side of the road.
0: For many years the 17 Irish rebels involved in the Battle of Mound Street Bridge never spoke in public about what happened. It wasn't until the 50th anniversary of the battle approached that these rebels, now much older men, began to speak of their efforts. Most of these archive interviews were recorded in the 1960s and 70s.
4: On Monday morning, I got a mobilisation order very early and I set a mobilisation in motion.
0: It's almost eerie listening to the voice of Captain Simon Donnelly, one of the Irish rebels. Simon was based at nearby Bolands Mills under the command of one Eamon de Valera.
4: Uh, we first arrived at Upper Mound Street and the company split there. Malone took his party and section from Moranless took his and occupied their position.
3: This particular position is commanded by a Michael Malone. Um, he has... Basically 17 in his unit. He deploys himself and another volunteer, James Grace, in number 25 Northumberland Road. Uh, This is at the junction of Haddington Road and is about 200 yards south of Mount Street Bridge. He deploys four men in the parochial hall, which is about 100 yards north of his position and, again, about 100 yards south of the bridge, uh, and he puts four men in here. He orders uh, Section Commander Reynolds to take six men and occupy uh, Clan William House, which dominates Mount Street Bridge and dominates the approach along um, Northumberland Road towards that position.
0: Michael Malone was a carpenter before the 1916 Rising and, like many rebels, he had no experience of warfare. Jim Grace had moved to the US and Canada in the years before the Rising and spent a few months in the Canadian Army. He also had very little training, but he did manage to smuggle his Lee-Enfield rifle back to Ireland on his return.
3: We're we're looking across the road at number 25 Northumberland Road. It is still the same building, still absolutely the same layout, with a little portico on the left-hand side of it. uh, Three-storey house with a half basement. Uh, When we look to our right, we can see the parochial hall, which is recessed a little bit back from the road. It's about 100 yards further north than number 25. um, And it is still the same building. And the only change really is when we look completely north. The Clan William House is no longer there. It's been replaced twice in the interim. But the schoolhouse, which is to the right and which is on the south bank of the canal, is still the same schoolhouse.
0: On the Monday afternoon, the first shots were fired. But it wasn't at the regular British Army. It was a company of reservists returning from a march who came close to Malone and Grace's position. The rebels opened fire and a number of the reserves were killed. All was quiet afterwards on Monday evening and night.
3: Tuesday morning they are simply checking their positions. Malone decides that the schoolhouse isn't the the location he needs and uh, withdraws his men from that location.
0: That one simple tactical decision Michael Malone made has huge consequences for the British the following day.
3: He ends up then with with basically three positions, Clan William House, uh, the uh, parochial hall and number 25. And he is supported by four men who were in a builder's yard about 100 yards um, east of Clan William House.
4: Now on Tuesday I got a request from Clan William House, from second commander relent to send over men and food. Now, the sending over the men was a very ticklish problem because we had none to spare. But I did send them over three extra men and some food. That made seven of the garrison in Clam William House.
0: Tom Walsh was one of the rebels sent to boost the numbers at the house overlooking the bridge. My
5: brother Jim and I were sent to reinforce the garrison in Clam William House. We were given 200 extra rounds of ammunition for our hold cones. Jim had also a 32 revolver, and I a 45 for which we were given extra ammunition. On arrival at the house, we were admitted by George Reynolds, who was in charge of the output post. The garrison barricaded the hall door and ground floor windows with heavy furniture. Jim and I were brought upstairs to a room overlooking a considerable area of Lower Mount Street. We placed some furniture in a window after which I went to the basement and brought up a quantity of coal. While searching for the coal cellar, I found a tailor's dummy and brought it up to the drawing room. We dressed the dummy to represent a human figure and placed it in the front of one of the windows. It was now late in the evening, and we were at our respective posts for the night. Mount Street was deserted. The silence was weird. Then away in the distance, the sound of rifle fire, which continued all through the night.
0: As Monday night gave way to Tuesday, the skirmishing in the centre of Dublin could be heard by the rebels as they lay in wait. Rumours were rife, as Captain Donnelly explains.
4: Now, on Tuesday, on one at once our post, there was all sorts of rumours circulating. Fellas were coming to say that... Uh, Germans were landing on the nice road and fella says, uh, no other fellas that know the part of the country had risen and these rumours were having a an effect on the men at this outpost. Now it was on the Tuesday night, I think, uh, when we were anticipating that the enemy might be landing at Dunlaherty, the commandant picked me or told me he wanted me to scout out towards Dunlaherty and to pick four good men. I picked four men with rifles, I was to charge myself. I whitened them back with flour, because the whole place was in darkness, so we were going to bring them out in Indian foil. You know, one man in front of the other, because there was no post beyond 25 Northumberland Road. That was our most advanced post, do you see? So just as we were about to start off, to my greater relief, and I say to the relief of the man, he cancelled the business, because it had been a rather ticklish. Undertained because nobody was going to walk into.
0: Tuesday night all was quiet.
5: Dawn came, followed by a lovely spring morning.
4: Rumors were coming in that the British was landing at a Dunnery, and a scout was sent out who came back shortly afterwards confirming that large amount of troops and equipment was being landed.
0: As the rebellion entered its third day, Wednesday the 26th of April, British reinforcements were on the way from England. Those who came didn't speak publicly about their experiences until the 1970s when they were old men. The
6: uh, 59th Division were the only complete division in England at the time of the Irish Rebellion.
0: Albert Palmer was one of them.
6: We were called out at uh, practically an hour's notice, at the, at the time I was at a theatre in London until 11 o'clock the same evening, and on arriving back at Watford, found that the battalion were about ready to move off. So I had to do a quick shuffle, get me rifle and kit together, and join them. The next thing I knew, we were on the train, we didn't know where we were going, and eventually, we embarked at Holyhead and uh, finished up at
0: Kingstown. Back in 1916, Dunleary was known as Kingstown.
5: We arrived in Kingston. It was five minutes past five in the morning by the clock at Kingston Harbour when we got there.
0: For many of those soldiers, including Arthur Geary, it was a surprise to them that they were sent to Ireland.
7: Oh, we were astounded rather than surprised because everybody thought, although this embarkation business used to happen every other night, putting on trains and off... And, they, and everybody thought, well, it's either another false alarm or we're on the way to France. But when it we went the other way, it actually went through Leicester, on the way to Hollier, it was the biggest surprise of the lot.
0: Albert Palmer and his comrades marched from Dunleary through Bulls Bridge and along Northumberland Road towards Mount Street Bridge.
6: Well, the... Uh The marching from uh, the quayside was uh, quite an ordinary affair. We were in column of fours and we had no idea of what was coming to us.
0: The Contested Memories Project has used the witness statements, regimental diaries and other eyewitness accounts to help in the reimagining of what happened next.
3: It's, it's a direct route, I mean, it's a straight route through, particularly for people who aren't too familiar with the layout of Dublin City. But, I mean, if, if you are using a north-south axis and you're crossing water channels that are running east-west, such as the Grand Canal and the Liffey, it is easy to find your position in Dublin. So, for people from Nottingham and Derbyshire who had never been in Ireland before, um, it, was, it was the obvious route to take. And it was, of course, the, the route that they were ordered to take.
0: What happened that bloody Wednesday of Easter week, 1916, resulted in scores killed and hundreds wounded. But the numbers reported by the British were said to have been exaggerated to justify the executions of the rebel leaders. Accurate figures have never been verified. Nor has the timing of the battle ever been fully explained. Even the simple question of why the British troops continued to march on Mound Street Bridge when they could just as easily have moved up a few streets for safer access into the city centre. Working on a computer simulation of the battle has given the project team an opportunity to answer some of these questions. Sheila Humphreys lived on Northumberland Road, about 100 yards south of the house where Malone and Grace were waiting she saw what happened next.
1: Around about one o'clock in the day, we heard the noise of marching men and looked out, and here we saw, as we thought, the whole British army coming in. And we
6: marched along the road until we got to Northumberland Road.
1: And they were marching along quite unconcernedly. They hadn't been fired on up till then. And the men in number 25 waited until they got to the junction of Haddington Road and Northumberland Road and
3: they opened fire on them. They claim to have had scouts out in front. They claim to have had some kind of a covering party, but certainly the witness statements of the survivors of the um, the volunteers don't make any mention of, of it. Also, the battalion commander and the the battalion medical officer and the adjutant were out to the front. Most unusual combination of officers to have to the front of a column that is expecting to be hit up. They start to take significant casualties.
2: What isn't clear from the stories or the uh, the witness reports is exactly what distance the open fire at.
0: Captain Alan Kearney from the Irish Defence Forces.
2: From what we've found firing the weapons, what you have is Malone and Grace in this building.
0: To get a better understanding of how events unfolded, he has tested the weapons, especially that Mauser C96 automatic pistol used by Michael Malone.
2: Grace has a Lee-Enfield, a long Lee-Enfield. You've got a C96 7.63mm that Malone has got. Now, that was the greatest surprise in the ballistic tests. I think... Anyone there with a background or an understanding of weapons Ago, it's essentially a handgun. How far is he going to fire? But with a competent fire, we were able to put shots on target at 100 metres. So what you're looking at then is building a picture. These two guys, they've got coming up the road, in their vision, I'd say with blocks of companies, probably seven to 800 they can see, uh, all armed
0: with 303 rifles. Albert Palmer was caught in Malone and Grace's fire.
6: And it wasn't until the whole of the battalion were in Northumberland Road, that the fire opened from the bedroom windows and the rooftops of the houses.
2: So it's a significant target to begin engaging with rifle fire. I would imagine they waited till the position came up very close and engaged them initially. You have to think of the confusion of that. You've got the Mauser firing into the crowd... Semi-automatic, so Malone can empty that clip fairly rapidly into the body of troops. Grace is operating, cycling the bolt, and firing as fast as he can. For the troops here, you've got this popping rifle sound in an urban area with a lot of sound reflection. It's going to be difficult to ascertain initially what's happening.
6: When the fire opened from the houses, it was the helplessness of it. Everybody seemed stunned because it was so unexpected.
0: Sheila Humphreys could see the men fall.
1: Some of them fell dead, others threw themselves on the ground because they didn't know where, from where the fighting was, the was coming. <laughs> so that, then, of course, after that, they didn't march. They actually crept on their tummies along the road. Difficult to ascertain initially
2: what's happening, happening. And you're marching, so you're actually looking at the, the back of the head of the person in front of you. So, it's going to happen all the way down the line. As people initially are going to walk into the person in front of them, that's the initial contact.
6: We, uh, we were in a hopeless position because we were firing at a, an angle up to the rooftops. And if you're on the wrong side of the road, of course, you're exposed to fire, to their fire.
2: Looking around, you can see the only area that offers useful cover are the the stone steps leading to the houses. You've got to get to them. I've no doubt there are people jumping behind trees and poles and even lying on the ground. Meanwhile, Grace and Malone are reloading. They were just firing from the bedroom windows and uh, with no shelter at all, so
5: the casualties were pretty heavy.
0: If there was one figure among the British who did manage to take control amid the chaos that day, it was Lieutenant Colonel William Fane. He was an experienced officer and well-liked by the troops he commanded.
6: We had to stop naturally and take what cover we could. I believe it was there where Colonel Fane gave the orders to attack this place. Well, it was futile, you know. They have got to go across an open ground and uh, well, he hadn't gone many yards before he was fetched down. He was
1: wounded and he came, came out with, now I don't know whether it was his sword or not, but he came out and tried to rally the soldiers. Uh, and so, really, although at the time we wanted every British person to be shot, but you couldn't but admire him when he came right out into the middle of the street again <laughs> and got, the, got them together.
3: At Mount Street Bridge we see very inexperienced soldiers who have no training in uh, fighting in built-up areas conducting frontal assaults on defended positions. It is unique in the Rising for units to do something like this and it just shows you the inexperience of those units and in particular the inexperience of the leadership of those units.
0: Arthur Geary believes the situation the British found themselves in was at least partly due to the fact that they had almost no appropriate training.
7: We've been trained for entirely different warfare, entirely different. We were trained for trench warfare, which is entirely entirely different technique, entirely. It has no bearing on this, what you call this uh, ambush business and uh, like that. So we had to learn all over again. Had we have known what we are going for, I suppose had the authorities known what we are going for, we might have had a week's training before or been briefed, in other words, as to what to expect.
0: The Irish rebels involved in the Battle of Street Bridge were also poorly trained. Most of them had never fired their weapons before, but what they lacked in preparation, they made up for in commitment.
3: What they, they learned, they learned in an ad hoc way as they went along, certain amount of training, lectures on street fighting, but they had a number of advantages going for them. They were committed, they knew each other, they knew the streets and lanes of the area they were operating in, um, and they were very committed to uh, defending that position.
0: The reality was that for much of the battle, just two volunteers were successful in holding back hundreds of troops Captain Alan Carney explains how it was done. They spent a
2: significant amount of time here where a group of a body of troops would be assembled under the command of an officer and run at Northumberland Road, which afforded Grayson and Malone a great opportunity to have a shot again. So think of that. You've got Grace and Malone here, they're dispersed in the building, perhaps shouting across each other, slightly disorientated from a significant amount of rifle fire, and they're trying to shout at each other, I'd say, what we do next, or the next rogue runs up at is, we're just going to shoot. So as they're running, you've got targets travelling at probably seven metres per second, running in a group. You can't just fire wildly at that. Grace or Malone have got to track a British soldier as he's running give them an appropriate amount of lead, consider that they're firing from a higher position, the the bullet will behave, their sights, etc., will be slightly different as opposed to firing on a straight line, and then engage that target, wait for an effect, maybe see a ground effect where they've missed, adjust their lead accordingly and run. What would eventually end up with is a gathering of British soldiers underneath this wall, the ones who make it. The ones who don't are lying dead or wounded out here. So you've literally... Pandemonium here for hours and hours until eventually they managed to get something together and finally take Grace and Malone out of the picture.
0: The shooting caused so much confusion among the British soldiers they believed they had run into a much bigger force.
6: Well, we thought there were probably two or three hundred, but apparently they weren't. But they, their fire was so good and so accurate that they they misled the the troops as to the numbers. They were quite good shots.
0: The Contested Memories project has also proven that if the British soldiers had been given the most basic rifle training, they could have overcome the Irish rebels at Mount Street Bridge with relative ease. From a
2: shooter's perspective from the British Army, you can appreciate your firing with iron sights. Now, if Grace and Malone were on the roof and you could see their heads, that's a difficult shot because you've got your foresight and you've got a small pumpkin-sized head target, maybe the shoulders, and you have a lot of air behind it, a lot of potential for a miss. But if you're an NCO or an officer and saying, fire at that window on the left, with an iron sight, that's a fantastic shot. And we've brought amateurs to the range, and they're more than capable, with a small amount of practice, even with a 303, say rested off a bench, as people could rest at these steps here, and putting shots at 100 to 150 metres. So, if you think of the amount of rifles employed here in this area by the British Army, with a modicum of command from NCOs at the time and a modicum of understanding of what they're facing, recognising their targets, you could put down 10, 20 people for a huge amount of rounds at those windows and suppressing Grace and Malone. But it didn't happen.
0: The British officers in charge eventually resorted to different tactics to take the house occupied by Michael Malone and Jim Grace.
6: The Colonel, realising that the rifles weren't doing much damage, remembered that the barracks that we had passed on the way in had a quantity of Mills bombs.
0: Mills bombs are like grenades. The British were so poorly trained, they hadn't been issued with any.
3: Bravo Company now conducts an assault on uh, number 25 and eventually takes it. It It takes it about quarter to three in the afternoon
6: Some bombs were thrown in and Lieutenant de Trixon opened the letterbox and called upon the occupants to surrender. The result was that he got shot through the letterbox himself and was carried out as a casualty.
0: The only Irish rebel casualty inside number 25 was Michael Malone which must have come as a shock to the troops who took the building.
3: This surprised them greatly, that there, were, there was only one man, that there was evidence of only one man. The other, the other, Grace, had escaped out the back garden at that stage. He was captured at a later stage.
0: As they moved up Northumberland Road, the next rebel position appears to have caught the British by surprise again.
3: Further up the road, about 100 yards, you can't see it very well from here, but in on the left, recessed back from the road, is uh, an area called the Parochial Hall. There were four men inside in that
0: position. One of the men inside the Parochial Hall was Joseph Clark. The only time he seems to have spoken about what happened that day was in an interview he gave to Donica O'Doling in the early 1970s. He also mentions firing a Mazer rifle. One of the guns landed in Hoth a few years before the Rising.
8: That very little cover... They had to go from garden to garden, over the rails, you know, from garden to garden, along the house, and we had a, we couldn't miss them, really. We fired on them from there. And we just fired away at them. I had a mortar rifle, only one shooter at a time. You had to load it every time you fired a shot. And it was very, very severe. I just didn't bother. just kept running away. The picture
2: seems to be... It was short and bloody, but it was literally you look at the field of view they have, it's very, very small. Because they're set back from the road, they're only getting this snapshot of the British Army, but it fills up very quickly with a huge amount of khaki uniforms.
8: Our ammunition ran out and we had to evacuate. And we tried to get on through to the next unit, but with the was surrounding, we were arrested just going out in the back. And I had a loaded pistol in my pocket, and I was probably I to gateway in for that. When I saw the fellow pulling the, trigger, saw the pulling the trigger, I ducked and the bullet went over my head into a stable gate. There was a doctor inside a tent one of the soldiers, and he came out, and by him coming out, he saved me getting the, the second bullet.
0: All four volunteers from this position survived. The British now believed the last rebel position on the southern side of the bridge was a schoolhouse. But the decision made on Tuesday by Michael Malone to move the rebels out meant they were assaulting an empty building
3: the British were under the impression that the rebel position was really in the schoolhouse but it had been abandoned on Monday or Tuesday the battalion commander lieutenant Colonel Fane now decides that he's going to try and reinforce the company or what's left of the company up here on our left hand side comes out on Percy Place, which is on the south bank of the canal, and attempts to envelop the schoolhouse. It takes withering fire from uh, Clan William House and the attack breaks down.
0: A young and very nervous Tom Walsh was looking across the canal at this attempt on an empty schoolhouse. He loaded up his Hothmaw's rifle for the first time.
5: I saw a British officer rushing from Percy Lane a long pasty place and up the steps of a house. I fired for the first time from my hot gun, and for that matter from any other rifle. In the excitement, I did not hold the weapon correctly, quite forgetting all our instructors' lectures and warnings. The butt hit me under the chin and knocked me unconscious, for I don't know how long. When I came to, I discovered that a large piece of the granite windowsill had vanished, From that on, I remembered it was a whole gunny I had to deal with. I fired again and again until the rifle became so heated it was impossible to hold it.
0: As the British casualties increased during that long spring afternoon on Northumberland Road, nurses, doctors and locals came out to offer assistance to the wounded men.
3: Over the course of the, um, the afternoon, from, from 12 onwards until late that evening, it isn't fighting all the time. Uh, there will be attacks. The British will regroup, make further attacks. And during this, servants and uh, people living in the, the houses in the locality start to wave white sheets and to go out and give help to uh, the British soldiers who were lying wounded and dying on the side of the road. Civilians led by a clergyman
5: rushed onto the bridge. Two gales ran under the crossfire and carried away the wounded. The furding from both sides ceased until the rescuers
3: withdrew. One of the women that goes to the help of the British soldiers is, is a, a lady called Louisa Nolan. Um, she's from Ring's End. Um, she's 18 years of age. Um, her father is a retired member of the Royal Irish Constabulary and she comes and through the shot and uh, and, and shell, as it were, uh, ignores all that is going around her, to bring help, to bring water and other comforts to the, the British soldiers in the position. This this gesture is recognised by both sides. Um, she's awarded the Military Medal for her actions. She is the first woman to be awarded the medal herself and another Dublin uh, lady, Florence Williams, who carries out similar action in Dublin Castle, both are awarded the Military Medal for extraordinary bravery on a day like that.
0: Day turned to evening and the frontal assaults across the bridge to Clan William House continued relentlessly.
3: Hours into the battle, we're talking about six to seven o'clock in the evening at this stage, they realise that the main rebel position is across the canal in Clan William House. Casualties continue until they r- run across the bridge and eventually take this by throwing grenades, etc. It allows the survivors, there are four survivors, to withdraw, and they take that position. We would reckon they have taken that position by something around 9 to 10 o'clock in the evening.
0: With the battle drawing to a close, George Reynolds became the last one to die, as Tom Walsh reads from his official witness statement many years later.
5: The house at nightfall, after eight hours continuous fighting, was riddled, and fires had broken out around us. The terrific enemy volleys were intense, and it was almost impossible to find cover anywhere. Our ammunition was nearly exhausted; we were almost suffocated by the fumes from the smouldering furniture. George Reynolds then gave the order to evacuate the post. He stood on the landing and emptied the last rounds from his revolver into the advancing enemy. As he turned to leave, an enemy bullet found its mark, and another Irishman had made the supreme sacrifice. We knelt and said, an act of contrition, we four survivors made our way to the basement, burst open a small window in the back door, and made our way across the garden walls of Lower Mount Street to freedom and safety.
0: The British casualty figures for the Battle of Street Bridge have long been disputed. Some had put the killed and wounded at close to 250. The Contested Memories Project has worked hard to arrive at a definitive figure, which, although lower than previous estimates, is still very significant, especially among the British.
3: On the day, uh, approximately 26 killed in action or died of wounds at a later stage, Um, There were, uh, we would reckon, 134 would have been wounded in action. So it's a significant level of casualties. The volunteers suffer significant casualties as well. Of the 17, uh, four are killed.
0: Along with death and physical injury, the psychological effect on both sides was substantial.
6: It was a bit rough, as I say, We lost an awful
3: lot of men around about, awful lot. I was one of the lucky ones. It isn't the romantic type of operation that we all hear about. It it is down and dirty type of fighting. Fighting in a built up area isn't remote control firing. Here you see the face of the man you shoot and that is the consequences of, of operations like Mount Street Bridge.
0: The Battle of Man Street Bridge was, for a 100 years, clouded in confusion. How many were killed and wounded? And how did two volunteers hold off 1,700 troops for so long? Only now, through the use of human expertise and 21st century technology, can we really understand what happened on that Wednesday afternoon, almost 100 years ago, in what was, militarily, the most successful engagement by Irish rebels during the 1916 Easter Rising.